Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. My guest today is Edward Thiel, a noted poet and author, as well as 95-year-old World War II veteran navigator. We're really fortunate to have you with us here, Edward, today. Thank you for joining us. Delighted, Mike. What we'd like to do is to maybe start off a series of podcast interviews with you by taking our audience through a telling of your joining the military at age 18 and what happened to you when you entered the Army. I joined up because if you enlisted rather than be drafted, you could choose which branch of service you wanted to be in, and I didn't want to be a foot soldier. So when I decided, I didn't care that I was going to college and I was exempt. I didn't care. I wanted to get away. I was away from home. I wanted to get away from home, school. I hated college. Oh, you started in college and decided to stop? Yes, I really disliked it intensely. What year was this? Let's just make sure the audience is clear. It must have been the end of 42. 1942. And my father was in advertising. He was actually a commercial artist at MGM. And he said, people always ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I never knew. And so we said, well, why don't you study marketing in the School of Commerce at NYU? And then that makes sense to me. And I did it because I didn't have any choice. I didn't know what I wanted to be. So, but I hated it. And I also hated my town growing up. So I enlisted and got away. And that town was? Uh, Lindbrook, Long Island in Nassau County, a very right-wing, solid Republican town, very anti-Semitic. You you were kind of a middle-of-the-road or liberal Jewish family? Uh, We were a working, more working-class Jewish family from East, uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe. And of course, in my town, as today, people hate immigrants. even though the country has been built on immigrants. So I enlisted, and uh, I knew I was gay already. And when the psychiatrist said, I was such a child, I looked much younger than my age. I was 18, but I I could still get into the movies half price as a child. And uh, he said to me, you like girls, don't you, Sonny? And all I had to do was to giggle and say yes. <laughs> Why were you seeing a psychiatrist at that age? Oh, you, to get into the army. Oh, okay. You're interviewed by a psychiatrist ah. to find out if you're crazy. You know, not just gay. Right. It was crazy too. And he was very. He made it very easy for me. And that was no problem. I knew I was gay already, and I had had a lot of sex in my teenage years. That was never a problem. We'll focus on that in a later episode. (laughs) Right. Right. And so then I went through basic training and I was sent to clerk typist school because I wasn't going to be a foot soldier, so I was going to be a clerk typist. And when I finished clerk typist school, I was assigned to a headquarters outside of Oklahoma City at Tinker Field, big airfield. In the barracks, the barracks was divided between simple enlisted men like me and the uh, non-commissioned officers. I think it was staff sergeant 
and higher. And they were all, so there was all these big shot sergeants at one end of the barracks with their own rooms. And I was with the plebs in the dorm end of the barracks. And we used to go to Oklahoma City every chance we got. It was, a, and they drove us there in sort of personnel carrier trucks, but they were just, you just all piled in. Would you, this was on leave? It was just to, the evening to, right. to go on pass. Okay, and how often would you be allowed to do that? You could do that every weekend, and occasionally during the week too, but I didn't. And, and when you came home again, they only had 3.2 beer in Oklahoma City because it was a dry state. So on this minimal amount of alcohol, you drank as much as you could to get drunk. And then you would all pile back in the trucks to get back to the base before your pass expired, which meant in the evening, before midnight, I think, something like that. And piling into the trucks, you just piled on top of each other, and I found myself sitting on the lap of a master sergeant at the end of the barracks. And this was in the dark, yes? Pitch blackness. And if I understood correctly, from when I heard you tell this before, you're all racing to get the last truck back. We're piling into So the that's last why there's truck. so many people in that, yes, in that truck. Yes, yes. So there must have been a few trucks, but you just piled in. And there I was sitting on the lap of Master Sergeant Glenn Cowden, whom I really didn't know. Did you know it was him when you were sitting on his lap? I did. Yes, I did. I don't know how I knew. And he started nuzzling my neck. And I responded next weekend. Well, before you go into the next weekend, you're there in the middle of 20, 30, 40 other men in the dark. All piled on top of each other. And you're groping and kissing and nuzzling? Yes. Yeah, all the way back to the base. Yes. And how long was that ride? Oh, it must have been a half hour, 45 right. minutes. So this must have been thrilling. So, yes, you know, sex had never been that much of a problem to have because as a schoolboy, you just raised your thumb on the road to get a lift, and whoever picked you up was more likely to be gay than not. And so I was sort of uh, ready for action after having gone through several months of training without any sex. A dry spell. Yeah, yeah. And it was very embarrassing trying to jack off under the covers in the barracks. <laughs> that was always a problem. And so the next weekend, we went to town together. And so we, you kind of touch base and coordinate and let's go? I can't remember exactly how we did it because there was so much going on. Right. Uh, and I used to see him going to the, he worked in the same headquarters as me. I worked in the, um, in one of the departments and he worked for the justice department, which had legal, all kinds of legal stuff. And he was one of those whiz kids who memorized every regulation. And they didn't need the books, the law books. They had him to quote all the legalisms. So he actually flew around the country with big brass all the time. And as a master sergeant, he was older than me. He was a few years older. You flew around the country with him when you were a, a, a plebe? When you no, were no, no. He went. Oh, he, he, he would go off on charges. Anyway, the next weekend, he managed. He was quite active in setting this up. And he managed to get us into Oklahoma City together and go to a hotel. And he was quite a gent. He introduced me to the barber shop at the hotel, where he always got the works. 
which was a, like a facial, head massage. And they, they did everything but jack you off. <laughs> and, uh, it was really great fun. And I recall you saying you looked at that as sort of your honeymoon, yes? It was the beginning of a honeymoon, right. yeah. It, it continued because that next week he moved me into his room, which was completely illegal. I'd just been made corporal, but I was not entitled to a room in the barracks. That was only for a non-commissioned officer. So what do you think all those other, whatever you were, we're thinking about this one out of their group being selected and elevated and put into that room next to the guy. Yes. Now that is the kind of, that is a mystery. He was very confident because he was in the legal department himself. Right. And he was also kind of a tough guy. He used to have big uh, bull sessions in his room. He would tie uh, trout flies. He was a great fisherman from Tennessee and outdoorsman. While he tied trout flies, he would talk joust with the other guys, and the Southerners had their own way. I learned the, um, he used to always, he, he, a particular favorite was to out-talk somebody, and like saying, you're so low, you could crawl under the belly of a dog. Or you're so low, you could crawl under the belly of a flea and still have room. It was sort of like that. They tried to outdo each other, talking. And of course, all this was very colorful and it was very sexy. So we were having a very good time. And the ladies, there were civilian ladies working in my office, and they're the only ones who noticed anything. They said, where did you get that class ring? I was wearing his ring. Oh my God. And you know, it's so strange that I could get away with this with nobody saying anything. But at a bull session shortly after, he twisted my arm in front of all the guys. He grabbed me and twisted my arm on my back, which was very painful. What prompted that, do you think? I think now when I think about it, somebody must have said something. So he had to show that he wasn't... He had to show that I was just a dumb kid. Right. He could do what he wanted to me. And it wasn't anything right. sexual. And, and that was particularly meaningful for you, that arm twist, yes? It had, yes, I didn't even realize what he was doing. I just thought it was cruel. And it had happened to me, of course, many times as a child, because being immigrant Jews in that town, uh, we were really persecuted terribly, punished constantly. So I was beaten up every day going to school or coming back from school more coming back. So having this happen five years later or whatever oh. really brought back all those painful memories. I would never have anything to do with them again. So so you basically made a decision after that happened. Instantly I knew this was finished. But now you're living in your boss's room. There was no way I could get out without making a big display. Move back into the dorm. Oh, everybody would have questioned. Something happened. Oh, I couldn't have called. But across my desk that day or the next day came a, a leaflet saying, a flyer, saying that so many planes have been shot down by the Luftwaffe over Germany. They were very short of aviation personnel. And you could apply for the aviation cadets without a college degree. Which they had previously required. 
It had been required, doubtedly, and I didn't, of course. Right. And so I instantly saw my way out, and I applied. And although I had to put on an act with him to some extent before I got away, and I had to gain weight also, I was so underweight, you had to be 128 pounds, and I was 122 pounds. I was very skinny. But I ate maltids, bananas, just stuffed myself, and then I didn't make it. The sergeant said, okay, Sonny, you're okay, well, you can get it. You'll gain weight when you join. Okay, so you didn't actually reach the level. No, being they... a little kid like <laughs> You got away with a lot, huh? A lot of men liked me. Yeah. <laughs> it was the first time in my life that men liked me in my town. It was horrible. I was ugly, a dark little immigrant Jewish boy who nobody could needed to respect. Well, let me just say for the for the listeners, looking at you now, it's hard to imagine you were ugly. You're certainly not dark. Um, well, I didn't know I was a cute kid. <laughs> but I didn't have any trouble getting sick. Right. I put my thumb up on the highway and they So how long were you in the affair with him? And how long did it take when you uh, decided you wanted to join the Air Force until you actually got accepted? And it was, uh, well, we'd had, it had been a couple of weekends in hotels in Oklahoma City. So it must have been, I can't really remember, but it must have been about a month. Okay. And then it took another couple of weeks to get accepted. And then they sent me to San Antonio where they tested me for everything. This is after you've been accepted or as they were considering it? I guess, I can't remember was I accepted or, I was sent away anyway. Perhaps provisionally. Perhaps. Yes, I think you're right, that, that it was pre- very provisionally because I ran into a football hero in my high school who would never have spoken to me. He, I, he, he would have treated me with utmost contempt, and he had been washed out, which gave me great pleasure Where did you since run into I passed. Where did you run into each other? At the San Antonio testing. So basically you made it and he didn't. And he didn't. It was great. It must have been so gratifying. Very gratifying. So, but yeah. because my math was, I could add, you didn't need to know much math, but whatever I did know, I passed, did well in mathematics, so they made me a navigator. But of course, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I had glamorous ideas. So what's the difference? What does a navigator, navigator do? A navigator sits at a desk like I was doing in the office, except in the plane. You're sitting at the desk, and you do have to have all kinds of navigation equipment that you're using to tell the pilot what course to take. Gotcha. So it was really a big responsibility. I realize now that I didn't get accepted as a pilot because I was too little. Those were grown men, mostly. They were really 24, 5. They had families. And And you were 19? I was a a little kid of 19. Was I 19 yet? Yeah, I think I just had passed 19. So all of this from start to finish, from arriving at boot camp to ending up in the Air Force, was six months? Maybe even less. Wow. And I got away from Master Sergeant Glenn Cowden. What an eventful <laughs> period. That's how you become a flyer in the So tell me how you made it from Santa Fe? Where was the testing center? Yeah, I was sent for training to uh, Cleveland, where I was given Piper Cub flying lessons. I had 10 hours flying lessons. <laughs> 
and I was terrible. Even though you weren't going to be a pilot? No, I was already on a track for navigation. But you know what, I guess they need to make sure that if something happens up in the plane and you have to navigate, or you have to... A Piper Cub and a B-17 bomber are two entirely different problems. But I was, and I was terrible, because I couldn't even drive a car yet. I had taken a few lessons, but uh, didn't do well. And then my Piper Cub teacher was sitting behind me in a seat with controls of his own. And I would have to aim the plane nose, landing was my big problem. You aim the nose of the plane to the ground, and then at the last minute before the wheels touched, you pulled up the nose and the engine stalled and you skidded into a landing. Wow. That's what they do. It's not so difficult yeah. if you if you have any judgment at all. Well let's let's I'm gonna leapfrog this period and have you take us from there to Europe, how you got there, what happened what you did during your time in Europe? Well, I graduated from aviation cadet training. It took about nine months, I guess, and I became a second lieutenant. A little kid, second lieutenant. It was really quite nice. And then we flew. We were sent to a camp in Midwest where we were given a plane and assembled a crew right. to fly the plane to England. And of course, then I was navigator. I was giving the pilot instructions. So I was doing my job already. And I'm smiling only because I was such a little kid doing this life and death stuff. And we flew to England, where I was assigned to an airbase, eventually, and a permanent crew. And we started flying almost missions almost immediately, bombing missions over Europe. How long did you do that for? I got to. Uh, Europe about December and started flying in January and I flew until the end of the war VE day in mid-April of, of 45 45 yes. so that would have been 42 I or went three. over in 44 oh you went over in 44 okay yes the end of the end of 44 so about a year would you say I was in Europe a year but half of that time was peacetime Ah, okay. After VE yeah. day, when I was really so in the six months or so you were flying, you did twenty nine missions. Twenty seven missions. Twenty seven missions. Tell us about them. The one thing about flying in a, a crew, somebody did say, of course you were a crew, a team. So that really keeps you going, even though it's terrifying. You're being shot at. Meaning you don't want to let the the other guys down. You want to yeah, you want to do your part with the with the team. And I, I do think that had something to do with it. But another factor is the excitement. It's terrifying, but it turns into excitement. Adrenaline. Is that what it is? I mean, no, but it's pumping, but you're fearful, but... You're f afraid, and I know I was afraid because I had to fill out a log while I was flying, saying when take off, when we rendezvoused with the other planes to fly over the target and I had to keep all the records of everything that went on moment bombs drop and I had to show this flight log to the debriefing intelligence people when we got home so how does that portray your fear my handwriting was shaky I saw the crazy handwriting on the log 
it, well, of course I was, I was scared out of my wits, except that it was thrilling. When we ran out of missions at the end of the war, I volunteered for more with other crews because I just couldn't stop. I could have gone on those bombing missions forever. And it is really quite hair-raising when you, you're flying in a great a thousand planes around a city like Munich or Berlin, and you come to the point where it's your turn to drop your bombs, so your squadron flies straight across the heart of the city where you're, or the target you're going to aim for. Presumably with planes from the opposition in the air around you. They didn't have any in. By that point, they were, they were low on planes? Yeah, we had destroyed the Luftwaffe. Ah, okay. But just before the end of the war, we did get some jet fighters come up after us. Nobody had ever seen a jet fighter before. The Germans invented it. Wow. And they did send it out. And I got my chance to shoot my gun. I had a machine gun sticking out the window opposite my desk called the cheek gun because it was in the cheek of the nose of the plane. And I got a chance to fire my gun at the end. <laughs> but if, if I recall, you not only were shot down once, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but you barely limped back across the channel to, to London on several of those forays. Yeah, we got shot up all the time because when you flew over the target, the air was thick with flak. Flak is the little pieces of steel that come out of anti-aircraft shells. And the, the anti-aircraft gunners on the ground, they calculate your height exactly and they send the shells up to explode right under you. So as you are going over the target, the shells are popping under your belly of the planes and you're bumping and the pilot must have had a terrible job holding the plane steady. And the way it worked was our bombardier didn't look through the northern bomb site to see where the target is. He watched the lead plane in the squadron. That bombardier did aim at the target, and we behind, our bombardier pulled the toggle to drop the bombs when he saw the ones ahead fall, which meant that the bombs fell in a mile square around the target, and that's what's called precision bombing. So tell us about what it was like making it back to base when you are riddled with bullets. Well, we were shot up, and what the, the little pellets would do, besides fly around me in the cabin, they ricocheted off the aluminum walls. Inside the plane? Yeah, they punctured the... But they also went up into the engines and went into the gas tanks, and the gas tanks were in the wing, so nobody was ever injured. Isn't that amazing with all the bullets uh, bouncing around? Amazing, yeah. amazing. But it did damage the engine, so five planes were destroyed under us, and we managed to get back to AFL. But the, on my third mission, we were damaged too badly and couldn't get back all the way and had to uh, ditch the plane in the North Sea between Holland and Norfolk, England. I go to my sister, who lived in Holland, when I visit her, I always looked across the North Sea from where she lived in The Hague, and I could see in my mind eye in the middle is where my plane crashed. And so what was that like? Well, you have ditching procedures, and you all line up. Of course, the pilot has to stay at the controls because right. he's got to land in the water. 
and the rest of us all had to get behind a bulkhead behind the pilot's cabin toward the middle of the plane and you put your knees up and the, another member would lean against your knees put his knees up so it was a little like an accordion of people and when you crashed you all your knees you gave in and you I was at the back <laughs> the littlest kid on the plane and it always and it hit me and so what you do is it's like hitting a brick wall you pass out because water is at even at 80 miles an hour and a heavy plane crashing into the sea and the water starts rushing into the plane you start climbing out of a hatch on the top of the plane onto the wing but since I was from the nose of the plane I was at the back and everybody was getting out and jumping into one of two rafts that pop out of the side of the plane and one raft didn't open properly so that had a lot of water in it and everybody was getting into the one good raft and they have a cord hanging to the plane and they either broke because the sea was rough or else they cut them so they wouldn't be dragged down when the plane, plane sank, sank. And the plane was supposed to float for about 20 minutes. I was on the wing with one other crew member, the radio operator, and we had to swim for the rafts. One raft was no good to go to because it was full of water, and the pilot was lying in that, the only one. And this other guy couldn't swim. He was from the Midwest, a farmer type. I was a great swimmer and it was no problem, even with heavy flying clothes, and a, I even had my parachute harness on. Um, I, I swam to the good raft and hung on, and it was February, so it was very cold, and the ditching manual, which we all read, said you could live for 25 minutes in the water. So I hung on and told the guys, come on, move over, I'm skinny. I said, you've gotta make room for me, but nobody wanted to endanger everybody in the raft. Were they at capacity? Was there some number of people? Yes, and yeah. they were even over. Right. Because there was supposed to be four or five in each, right. nine or ten crew. We had nine people in the crew, and so... And almost everybody was on the one raft. Yeah, except the pilot in the, and then the radio operator got washed away. Right. I don't know. What, we never saw what happened to him. So what happened when you're sitting there in the water freezing? Uh, I kept saying, come on, let me on. Guys, let me on. Nobody would. And suddenly, this tail gunner, not tail gunner, the ball turret gunner, who was skinny kid from Arkansas, he got up and started taking his clothes off and jumped into the water. So you could climb on board. But I don't think he did it for that reason. I think he did it because he thought, oh, that sissy crying in the water. I'm a real man. I'll show what a man is. And he jumped in, and he actually worked to pull the two rafts together. And we all paddled, too, and, and tied the rafts together. And then he got into the raft with the pilot. Now, I don't understand why he did that. Um, it, because it was filled with water. Yeah. Freezing. And the water was washing over. Right. Meanwhile, you did get on the, the, the safe I was raft. safe. Yeah. I had a place. Yeah. I didn't offer to get to give him back his place. Of course not. No, you didn't. You wouldn't. So what no. happened then? Well, the pilot gurgled and died. You can see that. That's what you do when you die. Green foam or something. Oh, boy. We shot off flares so that somebody would see us. 
and indeed a British air sea rescue cutter saw us and came and hauled us in, hauled us up. But what about the kid from Arkansas? Dead. In the raft? Yes. From the cold? Yes. You could live in it. Yeah. Well, look, this is amazing. The last half of this, of course, story has not really been so much about your, your gay life and experiences, but as a gay pilot, I wanted to take our listeners through <laughs> an, an odyssey and an understanding of what it was like as a 19-year-old to find yourself in the middle of war. Well, also, it is gay because gays fought in the war. Right. And like our, the only other gay person on the crew was our tail gunner. He was a kid from Boston, and we came out to each other when we were sent to a rest home on the Irish Sea. We Why? were there for two weeks. Uh, to recover? To recover. So he'd been on the plane with you? He was the tail gunner. And Sounds our, kind of appropriate, we discovered it? that We discovered, to uncover, we came out to each other. And you did learn, uh, being in the army, um, being in the military, the underground, the gay underground, right? Like in every airfield, I learned very quickly, there was a chaplain, and the chaplain's assistant was always gay. And you went to him when you came to a new airfield. You went to him to find out where the gay had But been. never the chaplain himself, given what we know about fathers and priests and whatever well, today? Well, perhaps, yeah. but, that, but it was always the chaplain assistant who was the gay one. And also, the kind of, by reputation, you, you always thought that nurses were the nurse corps, nursing corps in the war was filled with gay men. Did oh. you have any nurses in, in your no. platoon? No. no, I never had any kids. Though, uh, later on, when I discovered the whole gay world, which I never imagined when I was, I just thought being gay queer was sex. So tell us about that education and how you figured it out and what made you realize it was more than just two guys doing it. Oh, uh, well, I actually had a gay friend on the airbase who was a ground officer was gay. Uh, he was a, How did you figure that out? How did you meet each other? Well, he was a poet. And he knew the whole literary set in London, both military and British. And he told me about, he used to go to the Gargoyle Club, which was not gay, it was literary. But of course, there were a lot of gay uh, people who went. Like, uh, he told me about a poet named, two po gay poets, I didn't know anything about this. One was George Barker, who used to brag about having slept with Americans from every state. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was Dunstan Thompson, who actually was American, who worked at Stars and Stripes, or one of the military newspapers. And he was a wonderful poet. He, I heard the word gay from reading his poems for the first time. He had poems that were shared underground? No, he published. He was, and he used the word "gay" describing homosexuals. Yes, in them, he was the only one. He was the first one I ever heard who used the word "gay." Was there any backlash uh, on that against him? No, he lived in a very sophisticated world of, of London. Wow. Okay, so you're discovering this gay milieu in London through these poets. Yes. What was the attitude of others around them, of the unsuspecting populace? Were they aware of? What was going on in their midst? And those who were, were they accepting of it? Or was there any opposition? I mean, again, we're kind of talking back in the 40s when the whole world wasn't aware of homosexuality by and large, right? Well, I guess not, except that 
No, it was everywhere. You couldn't avoid it, if, even if you weren't gay. Like in the PX, gays used to get together. The PX is where you, you go for the food and buying you get, provisions. You could, and, you could get beer and rokes right, and right. all that stuff and buy t-shirts. So I did meet gay soldiers, gay other gay airmen. Right. And they would tell me about going to London with somebody they were a mechanic they were horny for. And it turned out they s slept together. And the guy was supposedly straight. So you, you had all that going on too. And then I was told about a gay club, White Room in London in, in Soho. I joined. You just needed somebody to sponsor you, but somebody in the hallway sponsored me. I don't know, there was nobody official. And so I didn't meet a lot of uh, gay soldiers there, uh, airmen, or I guess from every branch of service. And they told me about all kinds of things, which I'd never heard of. And they made me go to an Ivor Novello musical. He's famous gay. <laughs> he was an actor, wasn't he? And so, uh, he wrote musicals. Ah. And he starred, he was a singer. Right. He was a singer. Apparently, he was in jail for being gay. Somebody had yelled, when he came back on stage after they had him out, the audience cheered <laughs> and stood up. And I went to see John Gielgud, the famous gay Shakespearean actor, right. Noel Coward plays, and I got to see a little of gay London. And, and this was all while I was going back and forth to my air base in the Midlands. I think you mentioned that you had a period when you were traveling with senior brass. Well, that was after the, after VE Day. I didn't go on missions anymore. Right. So my squadron, my bomb group, moved to the south of France to transport GIs back home because the war in Europe was over. Then we, you were supposed to be retrained for the Pacific, that idea. You weren't discharged. But then I was suddenly asked to be navigator a courier flight that very big brass around Europe, they had to have spotted. You think some of the gay big brass? Somebody up there mm -hmm. was good to me. It had to be. I mean, why was I picked, plucked out of... But you never found out who or why? No, yeah. I never found out. Though there was a clue because we once flew to Frankfurt and we went to a nightclub, an army nightclub, and we were sitting at a table with a lot of officers and then went back to the apartment of one of them, confiscated apartment in a German housing project for a party. And it was a gay party. One of them played show tunes on the piano. Did everyone just assume that all the people in the group were gay? And they weren't. They weren't. And as a matter of fact, one of the officers opted out and he slept on the couch. We all paired off and went to bed together. I'd never done this before. In in, in private rooms or in, in view of others? No, in private rooms. Right. It was a big apartment. Sure. And this straight man, I, we knew he was married and with children. He was not gay, but he was perfectly accepted. This is amazing. And he slept on the couch and right. we all had our... Oh, and the pilot, the pilot was not gay either. And he went to bed, he went into a room with one of the wildest queens and off who's wildly drunk. And the next morning at breakfast, <laughs> he said, you got it all wrong, guys. <laughs> so basically he, he went was along, a very nice guy. He, went, oh, he did or didn't have sex with the, with the queen? Well, I don't know. Do you think? I think he did. So basically people could sometimes be influenced under the under alcohol like like today. It was perfect, right? And they knew I had gone to bed with this, with this 
major, I think he was a major right. colonel. Very nice man. He seemed like a family man, too. So how many of these cities did you travel to with the brass and meet gay men or go to gay, gay clubs? Uh, well, London, of course, I could always go to the White Room. And Paris, they told me about the famous gay bar, the Bursa on the Champs-Élysées. What does that mean? Do you know the, uh, the The cow on the roof, the bull on the roof, okay. is a famous painting by Chagall. Gotcha. And uh, Cocteau opened this uh, surrealist cafe, because that was a surrealist painting. Right. And so it had been uh, a surrealist club, and then during the war it became a gay club. And it was filled with military men from every army of the, of the so Allies. London, Paris, the south of France? Marseille, well, it was a drive away. Yeah. And I met a captain in the Bristol uh, Etoile who was being court-martialed for being caught in bed with a paratrooper. But it didn't mean he couldn't go out, and he was living a perfectly normal life while he waited. Until he, until he got evicted. Did you go to Rome or Amsterdam or any of those other cities? Rome, I did go to Rome. Uh, Amsterdam was the last to be, the Holland was under occupation to the end. France was liberated, everything was liberated, but not Holland. That's what I really learned about, that there was a gay world. Right. Like uh, at the White Room, they told me when I went back to New York where to go. There was a gay restaurant right. where the gays lived in these 50s. But you're saying you found this out first in Europe? Yes. I never had any inkling of it. it uh, my eyes opened really quite startling once I went to a restaurant with with my captain boyfriend. He was so clever. He was free. He knew how to operate. He went to the motor pool and checked out a jeep. He was a captain. He could do it. And we drove to Marseille and we went to this restaurant that he must have known about. And when we walked in, Every head turned and looked, and I knew gay work. But that was or wasn't the gay club where that happened? It was a gay, a gay oh. restaurant. Okay, gotcha. So that was the first evidence you had. Civilians, they were yeah. all French. Right. So that must have been quite an awakening. That was terrific. All of these places I went to, it was all a learning experience. Well, the, the biggest surprise to me is not that there was an underground or that you discovered it, but that there was this simultaneous heterosexual commingling some of which resulted in sex, and yeah. some, of, some of which were people that just tolerated you guys doing what you did and, yeah. and didn't care. Yeah, of course my captain boyfriend was being court-martialed, so right. you did get kicked out. And, and that, was, that would have been uh, pretty awful because having the VA hospital is wonderful. But I'm saying that probably only happened if you literally were f flagrant, flagrant about your behavior. I would say absolutely. Right. Well, this has been a really enlightening episode, Edward, and I can't wait to hear from you and share with our listeners the rest of your story. As you all have heard, Edward has had a, an exciting life. This is just the beginning portion of it. When he was in his late teens and early 20s, there's a lot more to come. So please stay tuned. Edward, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Oh, this has been fun. Thank you for listening. This episode of Bammer was produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more interviews and stories, please visit bammer.co.